Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome to Soul to Soul, right here on 101.9 Hi FM. Great to be with you here this wonderful afternoon. And today we're going to talk about the upcoming festival of Pesach Sheni. Of course, next week will be Lagba Omar. We'll talk about that then. You see, our Jewish calendar is filled with days of note. Some are biblical holidays, rabbinical holidays, and many are not holidays per se, but are certainly days of significance. And if we could really put all these dates, you know, tally all these dates, we would find that there's approximately 65 significant days in the course of a year. That averages out to about five and a half days a month that are special. I'm including in this fast days, I'm including Rosh Chodesh, I'm thinking days like Tu B'Shvat and Tu B'Av and Erev Pesach, which is a holiday of its of, of, of sorts of its own. So if you, in fact, if you include the Hasidic Pagra, the specific significant days on the Hasidic calendar, you've got a lot more than that as well. So the point I'm making is we're always either gearing up for a Jewish day of note or we're basking in its afterglow. We're celebrating one day or another, and there's lots to celebrate. In fact, every single day should be a day of celebration for us in our lives. Now, some of these dates are better known than others, right? For example, people, everyone knows about Pesach. People, more people know about Pesach than Pesach Shani, which is coming up this coming Sunday evening Monday. What is Pesach Shani? Literally, it means the second Pesach. Now, under ordinary conditions, our busy stream of life, our hectic schedule might get in the way of celebrating what might seem like a minor holiday. But considering, especially for those who are part of the Chabad Seniors Club, or the truth is relevant to every single one of us, that if we could, the past year we were, we had quarantine, we had, we had lockdowns, we had stay at home. So we had more time to reflect. And certainly we could focus on these days of note that perhaps otherwise might pass us by. And especially this year that it's on a public holiday this coming Monday. So what we would like to do is to talk a little bit about how to celebrate such a day that coincides with a public holiday that we could celebrate Pesach Sheni as it meant, as it's meant to be. And, you know, of course there are major Jewish holidays, but why should this one be forgotten? In fact, that's the whole theme of Pesach Sheni that we should, no one should be forgotten and nothing should be neglected. So think about it. It's nearly a month since we've had our Seder, right? This coming Saturday night would mark four weeks since our first Pesach Seder. And exactly one month later, so 30 days later, Sunday and Monday, is when we have the second Pesach. But what's this festival all about, right? Why is it necessary to have a second Pesach? Is one Pesach not enough? Now, don't get scared. You're not going to have to start cooking and cleaning. Well, it might be a good idea to have another Pesach retreat, right? For those of us who've enjoyed the Pesach retreat celebrations. But let me give you a little bit of background, a little bit of history, because it's proper to understand what is Pesach Sheni all about. So it goes all the way back to the time when the Jews left Egypt, right? On the night before the exodus from Egypt, God instructed the Jewish people, to enjoy a very special kind of family meal. In fact, it was a braai. It was a wonderful evening home alone, just you and your family. In fact, we had to lock the doors. Nobody was to be roaming the streets that night. They were to bring a sheep into their homes, roast it on a spit, 
and eat the roasted meat for dinner. A nice, proper braai. And this is the first ever carbon Pesach, right? The Paschal lamb. And they were famously told, collect the blood from the sheep and paint it on the doorposts and the lintels of your homes. They were told to eat the lamb at home. Don't go out. And indeed, when they left their homes in the morning, they found the entire country. Everyone was in panic, urging the Jews, leave, get out of here. Go, go, go. Every firstborn in Egypt died except for Pharaoh and the Jewish firstborns, of course. So the Egyptian neighbors were, were doing anything they could. They offered them anything that they would want as a bribe to encourage them to go leave Egypt. And the Jews spent that morning collecting whatever valuables they deemed that they wanted, that they discovered during the plague of darkness. And most Egyptians were happy to give the Jews anything they asked for. Others wanted need a little bit more encouragement, but give they did. And at the stroke of midday, the Jews left Egypt in mass. Each one laden with abundance of material goods, reparations for all those years of harsh slavery, of persecution, of difficulty. And when God instructed Moshe on the Korban Pesach to offer this Paschal lamb, that they were meant to have this magnificent bride for dinner, God mentioned that this would be an annual ritual every single year after that on Pesach night. But there was a caveat, the Torah says, when you reach the Holy Land. That's it. When you get to the land of Israel, that's when you are going to be celebrating this festival. So they were told that in the future, they're going to be offering this whenever, when they come to the land of Israel. But at that point, the Jews, think about it, they were expected to get to Israel in no time, right? They were going to spend their little bit in the desert, seven weeks preparing to receive the Torah at Mount Sinai. And then after that, they were meant to make their way to the land of Israel. It's not a very long trek from Egypt to Israel. People do it all the time. And it's a walking distance. But of course, we know that 40 days, less than 40 days after receiving the Torah at Mount Sinai is when sadly the Jews betrayed God. Act, heinous act of infidelity, and they worshiped the golden calf. And so they were stuck in the desert. But that wasn't their final destiny. In fact, the next year, over the course of the following year, many things happened. First, you know, after receiving the Torah at Mount Sinai and the golden calf story and all that, then they got Yom Kippur. God, Moshe Rabbeinu managed to secure God's forgiveness for the Jewish people. And they were told to build the Mishkan, the tabernacle, which they did, which was meant to be as a rectification, as a tikkun for the Chetaega, for the sin of the golden calf. And then on the first of Nisan in the year 2449, they left Egypt in the year 2448, the following year, they built, they, they dedicated the Mishkan. And that was two weeks before the second Pesach, two weeks before the anniversary of the Exodus. At this point, God surprised the Jews with an unexpected directive. God said that this year, that year, one year, first anniversary, they were going to offer carbon Pesach once again, as they did the previous year. Now, the previous year was sort of like last year. If you look at the sequence of events, 
the first carbon Pesach was in the year 2448 was in the same sequence of last year and it was at home as they were stuck at home the very first exodus from Egypt they were stuck at home well the same thing happened like we had last year where it was quarantine stay at home orders the second year was the same sequence as this year we're sort of like a year after the exodus from Egypt maybe there's some kind of cosmic message for us in this if we could analyze a little bit deeper. But the point is that this year, like then, the year 2449, Pesach began on a Saturday night. And generally speaking, a carbon, a sacrifice, can, can only be offered on Shabbos if it's a communal sacrifice. Whereas the carbon Pesach initially was a family one the first year, but the second year became a communal offering. And so the very similar similarities we could see between the first year and second year. We'll be right back after these important messages. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome back to Soul to Soul, right here on 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Rabbi Ari Kippen, and it's great to be with you here in this afternoon. We are talking about the upcoming festival of Pesach Sheni. And although it might be a minor festival, a minor Jewish holiday, it is in the Torah. It is a biblical holiday. We're talking a little bit about the history of it, and then we're going to get to the messages and lessons and how we can practice, how we could observe this holiday today in our lives. And of course apply its relevant messages to how we can enrich our lives with it today. So we said that the very first time the Jews offered a carbon Pesach was before they left Egypt. And God said that the next time you'll offer it is when you get to the land of Israel. Now, one year later, they were still in the desert, not expecting to be, but because of the turn of events that occurred in that past year, they wound up still being in the desert. And God said, you know what? This year, you will offer the carbon Pesach, the Paschal Lamb, once again, even though you're not in the land of Israel yet. Now, this was quite a surprise. The Jews are not expecting to bring a carbon Pesach that year, but God surprised them and told them to bring one. And it's fascinating, this is the only time that they brought the carbon Pesach offering in the desert. They were never again instructed to bring it until they entered Israel. So why did God make this rather unexpected exception? When God provided the instructions for the carbon Pesach, Hashem instructed that any people who, there are certain exceptions, such as apostates, people who worship idolatry, or those who were uncircumcised, were not permitted to bring the offering. Now, of course, we mentioned before the first carbon Pesach was in the desert. Uh, sorry, the first carbon Pesach, which was in Egypt, right? So here's the first time they're offering it in the desert. And this is after the Jews had worshipped the golden calf. Now, though God already informed Moshe that he'd given, that, that God had forgiven them for their sin, and that's why they built the tabernacle. They were utilizing the gold for a higher, more spiritual divine purpose to make up for worshipping the golden calf. And the sacrifices that they would offer and bring were accepted by God as atonement. But nevertheless, the Jews did not know whether their status as apostates had been lifted, right? The fact, the proof was that this would only be possible if they were permitted to offer the carbon Pesach. And the fact that God allowed them to offer the carbon Pesach and instructed them to do so was an indication of God's forgiveness to Jewish people. So rather than make them wait and be anxious for 40 years, which wasn't yet determined that they were going to be in the desert for 40 years. Don't forget, the 40-year decree of staying in the desert was only 
enacted after the sin of the spies, which happens a few months later on the ninth of Av. That becomes the very first Tisha B'Av. They cried for no reason. God was sending them to the land flowing with milk and honey. And they cried for no reason in the desert. And so God said, I'll give you something to cry about. But that's months later, right? Pesach is Nisan, the very first month on the calendar. Think how many months. There's Nisan, Ir, Sivan, Tammuz, Av. Five months later would be the time for the next, for when they would be decreed to stay in the desert for 40 years. So here, by God making that exception, telling them to offer the carbon Pesach, even though they weren't yet in Israel, now they knew beyond doubt that they had been fully forgiven for that grievous sin. Some Jews, though, were in a state of impurity. For whatever reasons, because they came in contact with the dead, which of course makes one ritually impure. And by Jewish law, they were now in that state of ritual impurity. And these particular people that for whatever reason, you know, um, it could be that they were the ones who were handling the casket of Joseph. There's various discussions of exactly who they were. In, in the Gemara, it talks about a few different options. Um, Rabbi Yossi Aglili says it was those who carried Yosef's casket. But Rabbi Akiva says that it was Mishal and Alitzafan when, you know, they were the ones who we read in the Torah portion two weeks ago. In fact, it's relevant to this week's portion of Ahwe Mot, is that they were the ones who removed the corpses of Nadan and Avihu when they died in the Mishkan, bringing a foreign fire to God. There's another opinion of the Gemara. Rabbi Yitzchak says that either group would have had plenty of time to become tar between the last time they touched Yosef's casket or Nadav and Avihu's remains. So, and, and, and you know, from that time to the carbon Pesach. So therefore he concludes that this was a mess mitzvah. Mess mitzvah, somebody who dies unexpectedly and has nobody to handle them. Now, chances are that could have been someone from the Erev Raf and the people, mixed multitude that joined the Jewish people because they didn't necessarily have family, whereas the Jews would have family. You see, mess mitzvah, someone who has no family or friends to take care of their corpse when they just suddenly died. But regardless of who it was, like I said, when you study the Talmud, you find that there's different opinions and perspectives of who it could have been. And it's fascinating to learn because when you learn one idea, it lends itself to extrapolating other aspects and ideas and you digress into different directions. That's the Talmudic mind. But then you always have to come back to the original point. So the point here we're making is that these were people in a state of, imp- of impurity and therefore they were not allowed to offer the carbon Pesach until seven days after coming in contact with whatever the cause of their impurity was. So the challenge here was that because they were in this impure state of Tuma, knowing that they were not permitted to bring the carbon Pesach, they came to Moshe Rabbeinu, they asked him, Lama Nigara, why should they be excluded while the rest of the entire nation brings the carbon Pesach and now they can't? And especially since they're involved in a mitzvah. And this raises a, an important question. They knew exactly why they were excluded. Right? It was because they were impure. Why did they ask why they're being excluded? They, they knew why they're being excluded. Right? And more importantly, what made them think that they should be included? If they had a reason for being included, why did they just tell Moshe, we want to be included? When we take a closer look at their words as it's written in the Torah... We see 
quite readily that they did have a rationale, that they, in fact, said to Moshe, they said, and I quote, why should we be excluded from bringing the offering to God in its appointed time along with the B'nai Israel? The key is those words, along with all the children of Israel. Their argument was, had we been people who regard ourselves as just individuals, right, we would expect to be judged on our own individual merits alone, which in this case means we were impure, and therefore that's the case, and we would understand why we're being excluded. But we don't see ourselves as individuals, right? In fact, an argument can be made that since they took care of a mess mitzvah, according to that last opinion on the Talmud of Yitzchak, which is an obligation in the entire community. Everyone has such a responsibility. So their very impurity, their very tumah was an extension of the rest of the communities. They were tummy because they buried a fellow Jew who everyone was obligated to be involved in the burial of. So they fulfilled the obligation on behalf of the rest of the community. If they represented the community, then they must be considered as part of the community, not excluded. So they felt you know, why should we be excluded? Why should we be separated? They want to be a part of the community and connected with the community's offering just like everyone else. So who cares then that we as individuals are impure? We want to be part of this particular offering because this is a chance to offer the carbon Pesach in the wilderness. And I think it's a very powerful lesson to all of us. The fact that God accepted their reasoning, their rationale, and God granted their request, it tells us that when we include ourselves in the larger community, as we read last week in Perky Yavad, Al-Tifrash Minatzibur, do not separate yourself from the community. Then God treats us in that way as well. God didn't look at their individual faults, but rather God gave them the same privileges, that same allowance that God accords the rest of the community, whether or not one deserves it. It's only when we isolate ourselves, when we separate ourselves from everyone else. Well, that's why the Mishnah says, Alti Froshmanatiba, don't separate yourself from the rest of the community. And of course, this is very important message and lesson for these times, you know, when many people are still not going out. I can tell you the messages I get, you ask people to come to shul, and especially with the elderly crowd who are being all the more careful to ensure that they don't get in any way in contact with others. Now, whether shul should be the target place or not, you know my opinion about that very clearly. If people are going elsewhere, and I hear this excuse from people that they can't come to shul because they're afraid of corona. Nonsense. Of course, there are some. If they apply that to their shopping and work and flights, great. But those who are flying planes and those who are going other places and those going into the shopping malls, you know that it's much safer at shul. Sorry, my own two cents. At our shul, we have an outdoors we practice social distancing. Everyone sanitizes. We check the temperature before we come in. So when people say that they're not coming to shul because they're afraid of, afraid of coronavirus, I'm afraid that that's just an excuse. And uh, only you know honestly yourself if that's the case. And this is what we're learning here. The Mishnah says, I'll teach but don't separate, don't isolate yourself from the community. Of course, if you're being careful across the board, then certainly you have a good rationale. But for those, for the others, Remember the words of the Mishnah. And remember its relevance and lesson right here when it comes to the message of Pesach Shemini. These people did not exclude themselves in the community. They were being part of the community. They were fulfilling a community obligation. So let's not forget about our friends, about our neighbors, about the other people who need our help. 
those people who are isolating purely and, and sincerely because they are concerned. And there are plenty of such people. We're part of that collective. If we treat ourselves as individuals, then God sees us each individually and treats us according to our own individual specific merit that we do or don't deserve. But if we treat ourselves as members of the community, then God views us in that sense as well. And God grants us the privileges that God grants to the community. So we certainly should be applying that message for ourselves, for life. It's a very important message. And we see this in Moshe's response to the people, that Moshe brings their complaint, their message to God, why should they be left out? Why shouldn't they be able to be part of this offering? And indeed, God swiftly consented to make up, that they could have a makeup date. And that was exactly one month afterwards. Pesach Sheni. This is a chance. In fact, the theme of the day is Nishtakim Rafalim. It's never too late. And I would say to my beloved friends who've been making up excuses why not to go to shul and find themselves at all types of other types of events, etc. That Nishtakim Rafalim, you could still come along and come back with open arms. We welcome you. Whatever shul you go to, I think every rabbi would say the same. But there's another question that comes to mind here, that although they felt themselves to be real integral parts of the community, why did God make such an unprecedented exclusion for them? Right? There are lots of Jews who feel connected to the community, who are nevertheless not granted any type of second chance like that. So why is it in this case? In fact, I think it's the only only situation we find of a makeup in the Torah, in the entire Torah. Yes, there are what's called yimei tashlumim, that is for certain sacrifices that one is able to, you have a certain amount of days after the holiday to bring those particular offerings. Like, for example, on Pesach and Sukkot, it's part of the yamtiv, and, and if a person didn't bring their carbon on the yamtiv, then they have a certain amount of days to, you know, to make it up. Um, you know, certain shavuos as well, right? But, but the... The question here is, you know, if you miss celebrating Shabbos, you don't have a chance to make up a Shabbos. In fact, with general sacrifices, the same rule applies. If a person brings a, if a person doesn't offer the sacrifice in the particular time that they're meant to, that's it. They lost their opportunity to do so. If you didn't put on tefillin today, today is gone. It's finito. You know, yesterday I should say, because today's not gone. Today you still have some time. You could do tefillin today, but that's not going to make up for yesterday's, right? So there's no makeup date for Hanukkah or Yom Kippur or any other holiday. Why is Pesach the exception, right? What did they do to deserve this? And the answer, well, I'm sure there's many answers, but the simple answer that comes to mind is because they asked. Not just asked, but they demanded as if their very lives depended on it. Lama Nigara, why should we be excluded? It's not a polite question. It's an insistent demand. When we Jews demand something from God, from our very depths, when we yearn for it with every fiber of our being, God steps in, God provides us. Reminds me of the story of Sears Tower in Chicago, Illinois. It's no longer called Sears Tower. In fact, it used to be called Sears Tower. Now it's called Willis Tower. And it's very interesting. How did Willis Tower get the name Willis Tower when it used to be Sears Tower? What on earth happened? And it's very, very interesting how it happened. But the short of it is, 
when Sears business started going in America, and it's very interesting how certain businesses not keeping up with the times just lose their lose their you know um, their attraction or whatever you call it. So the building was looking for a new anchor tenant because Sears managed to vacate a lot of the floors of that building. And so the Willis Insurance Company, which is actually connected to Anglo-American here, they negotiated a deal with the building and they wound up becoming the new anchor tenant of the Sears Tower. While they were at it, in fact, I think it was Mr. Willis who was being interviewed on TV and the anchor asked him, how did you manage to get the building renamed after yourselves? For decades, it was on a Sears Tower. How did you change its name to become Willis Tower? And you want to know his answer? Very simple. He said, because I asked. Isn't that great? And the same thing. When a child asks their parent, God provides. This isn't just a negotiation in a business. We're God's children. No matter how important and busy a parent might be, parents make time and space for the children's requests. Even the busiest CEO of a Fortune 500 company is responsible for the for the salaries of thousands of, of employees, right? And it takes weeks to secure an appointment with them. And when you finally get them to see them, they can only give you a moment. But imagine their child calls in in, in distraught, this whatever position the child's in, crying. I would imagine, hopefully, that the parent would be there for the child at that time of their distress. And so we are all God's children. When a child distraught, when a child begs from the depths of their heart, God sets aside all considerations and God grants our entreaties. And this is even more profound when you consider that the people who were prevented from bringing the sacrifice were not restricted by man-made laws, which man-made laws can be repealed, can be edited, can be changed. They were restricted by God-given law. The Torah forbids bringing a sacrifice when you're in a state of Tumah, when one is ritually impure. So how could they have hoped to get around that? It's a biblical law. Yet these people cried out to God from their hearts, with every fiber of their being, and God answered. God granted their request. So this is a profound and important message to each of us. And it's only Pesach that has this makeup date because this was the only occasion on which some people pleaded for this. No one ever did that for any other mitzvah. And perhaps if someone would have demanded a makeup date for any Jewish holiday, even for Pesach, for example, for the next 40 years, maybe God would have granted it to them. And I think this teaches us a really important lesson Sometimes there are mitzvahs that we have to, you know, that we must do, but we find ourselves unable to do them for whatever circumstances. Take the individual who wants to go to shul, but is really truly being careful in all aspects and areas and not making up the excuses, right? So in that instance, I have no doubt that God's forgiving and God says, you know what, your home becomes a shul. The whole period of quarantine was like that, right? A, a, a father's forced to work at night and can't help the child with homework, right? Or a mother is overwhelmed and doesn't have enough energy or patience for what, you know, then remember the message of Pesach Sheni. It teaches us that if there's a mitzvah that we cannot do for whatever reason due to circumstances beyond our control, then we could plead with God from the depths of our hearts and God will find a way to make it happen. 
help will arrive from the most unexpected quarter, as it did for our ancestors in the desert. That's an important message for us. And so if at this time you find that you're not making your way to shul because of sincere, genuine, real concern about not coming in contact with other people and doing all that you can, then no doubt that God is certainly, God pardons, God forgives, and you do not need to be worried. We'll be right back. Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9. Hi FM, I'm Rabbi Keeping It's great to be with you here this wonderful afternoon. We're talking about the upcoming festival of Pesach Shemi and its relevant messages to our lives. Of course, there are so many. And so we talked about the importance of asking. And when we ask genuinely, sincerely of God, there's no doubt that God grants our request. And so, like we said, if for whatever reason, because you deem the danger of gathering with others, and therefore you're not able to make it to shul like the past year when many times we found our shuls closed due to the certain restrictions imposed by the government. Well, guess what? I have no doubt that God not only is forgiving, but those called out to Hashem and said, Dear God, we want to pray with a minion. We want to be back in shul. We want to hear the Torah. Well, God answered our, our request. And therefore, as the situation improved, of course, the government lifted those restrictions. For all you know, it could have been a restriction. There are other countries that still are in a position of restriction. And we need to turn to God now and ask God to really and demand finally a relief from this COVID-19 that's unfortunately still ravaging in the world. And right here in South Africa, there are plenty of people still being affected by it every single day. And so, you know, it's easy to grow cynical and to think that God doesn't pay attention to our prayers and that whatever it is doesn't make a difference. But the Pesach Shani story reminds us that God is personal. To God, we aren't just faceless, nameless beings. We are God's dear children. God pays close attention to our words. If we cry with that authenticity, with that sincerity, real genuinely crying out to God, then God listens to us. God's response is not always necessarily what we expect, but... For those Jews who protested in this Pesach Sheni story and hoped to bring the carbon Pesach that day, well, they were still impure, and that's not what God granted them. But God did give them something else. Sometimes God knows that what we ask for is not in our best interest, per se. But God always listens. And Hashem always responds in a way that ultimately we know is in our best interest. And so, in this story, the Torah tells us that we, in fact, have the second Pesach Shani story. But what else is interesting? I mentioned this at a shir earlier this week. For those who would like to watch it, you can go to the Chabad South Africa YouTube page where you can find many wonderful classes offered by the various rabbis from Chabad House. Or you can also go on to our Facebook page, Chabad South Africa or Chabad Seniors or the Santon Central Shul, where you get access to many of the classes, some of the classes that I gave. And we spoke and discussed at great length how what's interesting is that this story, which is related in the ninth chapter in the book of Bamidbar, Numbers, and it occurred on the first anniversary of the Exodus, which is surprising because the first eight chapters of this book relate events that happened two weeks after the story. So, yeah, the simple answer from Rashi is, you know, which means 
Torah is not in necessarily chronological order. The Torah is not the Bible, which is bibliography, but the Torah is ours. You know, bibliography is history, but the Torah is our story and has relevance to us. <laughs> but the sages discuss this, and Rashi even asks this question, why is it chronicled out of order? Why is the early event told later? And there are many answers given, but just to share with you the one that Rashi, the most famous biblical commentator, says, is that this is a shameful saga for the Jews. So God wanted to delay the telling of this disgraceful story. But then one wonders, what about this story is so disgraceful? The fact that this was the only instance in all the years that the Jews were in the desert that they could bring the carbon Pesach. Now, the face of it, you wonder, you know, why is that disgraceful? What did they do wrong? Wasn't it God who decided that the Jews should not bring it until they come to the land of Israel? But one of the answers is that if we learn anything from this story is that if the Jews would have banded together, if they would have stubbornly demanded and humbly pleaded with God for additional opportunities to offer the carbon Pesach, then there's no doubt that God would have granted it to them. The fact that they did not beg, that's what's disgraceful. That that was something. They could have begged and pleaded with God, and there's no doubt. Like, Sears Tower was willing to change its name to Willis Tower. There's no doubt that God would have granted them the opportunity had they requested at least. We don't see anywhere in the Torah where they requested such. So, of course, again, it's an important lesson for us that about pleading with God we need an end to the suffering, the hardship that the world is going through, right? So if we go all the way and plead with God, we may as well actually plead for the ultimate salvation of the world, for the coming of Mashiach. I think the story teaches us that we need to limit ourselves to, not, not to limit ourselves to reasonable requests per se, right? The people demanded a second opportunity to bring the carbon Pesach. They were asking for something that was unprecedented. They wanted the rules changed, biblical law, God's divine enactment. And still, they asked and they were granted their request. So if we consider everything that we've gone through all these centuries, and it's not, it's not unreasonable to ask for Mashiach. And uh, certainly, if God was able to grant the idea of a Pesach Sheni, certainly, certainly so, God could grant us the final salvation that the world needs, which is the coming of Mashiach. I would just like to share a few other points that come to mind because when, when God presented the Jews with Pesach Sheni, God said that Jews would be eligible if they were impure or on a distant journey during the first Pesach. Now, how far away from the temple would we need to be to be considered on a distant journey? In fact, at that stage, nobody was really geographically distant because all Jews were together in the wilderness and they had the Mishkan, the tabernacle, traveling with them. But the Talmud discusses this and offers two opinions. One is, we're talking about for the future, when the temple stood in Jerusalem. Of course, after it was destroyed, we no longer offer the carbon Pesach in Jerusalem. So the Talmud explains that we would need to be as far as the city of Modi'in, which was not very far. It's about 22 kilometers from Jerusalem. The other opinion is that one is considered at a distance even when they're on the opposite, the other side of the temple's door. And what that's telling us is, what does distant mean? There is obviously geographical distance, but there's another type of distance as well. You know, why would a Jew spend the entire day outside the temple and not even go in a quick moment to offer the carbon Pesach? So obviously we're talking about someone who's going through a different sort of crisis. 
Maybe they're physically close, but emotionally or spiritually different. And they're not motivated to go inside. They're not motivated to connect in the temple. Does this count as being on a distant road? And the Talmud says, of course it does. If you're outside the temple looking in, you're not far geographically. You'll enter the temple, but we're talking here about someone who might be looking out. And this could happen to any of us. Life is a long journey. We face many obstacles and challenges along the way. And sometimes we're close to the temple, to holiness. Sometimes we're excited to go to shul. Maybe all those people making excuses is because they are perhaps spiritually distant. They may be physically close. They're around the corner from the shul next door to the shul. But maybe they Maybe they're just not feeling up to it for whatever other reason. Maybe they're just choosing not to. And ultimately, we have to realize that the feeling of alienation can only develop when we forget one essential truth, that there's no distance between the core of our identity and God's plan. They don't march in opposite directions. They are in complete harmony with each other. The dissonance that we feel usually comes from a sense that there's me and there's him. Two different agendas, two different desires. But when we learn more about ourselves, about God, about our souls, we come to realize that that's not the case. We realize that we are part of God. God is part of us. And that's the message of Pesach Shemi, is that even a person is unable to go into the temple, not because of physical distance, but because of emotional, spiritual type of distance. And guess what? You could still have a makeup date. And I think that's another important lesson that I'll try to discuss a little bit before we conclude in a moment. Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to Soul to Soul Radio right 101.9 Hi FM. I'm Rabbi Ari Keatman, and we're talking about the messages and lessons of Pesach Shani. Before we left, before we talked about the person who's not geographically distant from the temple, but emotionally or spiritually distant. And perhaps maybe a Jew doesn't go into the temple, doesn't walk into shul, because maybe they feel unworthy. Maybe they just, for whatever reason, considering their past, considering their opinions, maybe they feel like it's just they're not the spiritual type. Maybe they think that God doesn't want to hear from them. And, you know, the entire nation is in the temple celebrating Pesach, but this person feels imprisoned on the outside. The person feels unworthy. As the Rebbe would talk about the fifth child who doesn't even know it's Pesach. Maybe that's why they're not there. And the Baal Shem Tov taught that that type of feeling, actually, it's not a healthy feeling. And therefore, we, as the rest of Klal Yisrael, have to do what we can to make everybody feel at home in God's home. We are all God's children. We all belong in God's home. God wants us to be respective regardless of our assumed levels of worthiness. God is thirsty for our presence. God yearns to hear our prayers. We should all make that effort to try as worthy or not as we feel ourselves. If we think of ourselves in any way, we have to discard any feelings of degradation, of feelings that uh, of hesitation to come to shul. We, we have to find the courage to step through the doorway of God's home, of God's inner space of our soul, and, and just go in. Once we step in, we're given the chance to make up for all the mitzvahs that we missed. We begin with one mitzvah, then add another one, and another one until we experience a complete personal transformation. So many have experienced this. I implore and encourage everyone to take that opportunity. And when we realize that, that God accepts us for who we are, God knows us, we don't have to deny ourselves the opportunity to come closer to Hashem. 
God wants us. Just do what we have to. And so, on a concluding thoughts, we talked about Pesach Sheni. We talked about its messages and lessons for life. The idea of not to feel too distant, whether or not we feel it or not, we have to know. Don't you know you're never alone? It doesn't matter where you are. There's nothing in his eyes more special than you. Wherever you go, Hashem goes with you. Final message to all of us. And this is a message especially our motto and theme of Chabad Seniors programs is it's never too late. And although this is the only festival in the Torah for which we're given a makeup date, I think it's an empowering message that it's always possible to correct any missed opportunities, to rectify whatever past challenges, struggles, opportunities we've had. Remember the word impossible spells I'm possible. Nothing's impossible. And so remember those words as they say in Yiddish, it's never too late. It's never too late to connect with your family. It's never too late to connect with your Judaism. It's never too late to connect with your shul. That's the concept of teshuva. God gives us the opportunity to change, to make those changes in your life. Just because we fail doesn't make us a failure. Failure is not getting knocked down. Failure is only if we stay down. So just to think about, seize the opportunity you have. We have to do whatever we can, whatever it takes to learn the message of Pesach Sheni. It's a clarion call to every one of us. Whatever opportunities we missed in life, God gives us another chance. Don't despair. You have a way out. All you need to do is to call out to God, to make that difference. We could do whatever it takes. We could make up. We could change our past. Yes, I know it would be great if you can click the delete button for certain past events in our lives. Of course, that doesn't work. You can't just click the delete button. But we could certainly make things up. So if you've been waiting off and calling that friend, that relative, somebody you really know you should be calling and make things up, work things out with, just do it. And if you were waiting to go to shul or to perform another mitzvah, Go ahead, do it. Nishda came far fallen. It's never too late. And with that, my friends, I remind you once again, our message on this show, how we could have less oi and more joy. Carpe diem. Seize the moment because yesterday's history and tomorrow's a mystery. But today's a gift of God and that's why it's called the present. So seize the moment. Carpe diem. Have a wonderful day. Enjoy the next shows right here on Soul to Soul 101.9 FM. Have a great Shabbos.